This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 115-115 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. Today, we're going to bring together some rockin' horse families. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Hello, Debbie. It seems like forever since we chatted. It does. It's because I think you got to take a few weeks off or a week yeah, or something. we had a little off. vacation in there, so we, we uh, jostled the schedule around a little bit. We had a little vacation to Alaska. Yeah, it sounded beautiful. Is it? Entice it us. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. And I was trying to put a concise description of it. And here's what I came up with. Alaska has an intensity of nature that I have not been exposed to before. It's not just nature. It's an intense nature. And it it's made like me... extreme. Huh? Yeah, it, it made me think of, you know, when you go to a city... A city has a vibe and electricity about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Big cities. I guess. It's that same, at least from, from my point of view, because when I'm in a city, I was like, yeah, yeah. I was getting, you know, static shocks from everything, just the intensity of it all. Yeah. It was that, but Mother Nature was creating it. It was, yeah, it was nice. It was very strange, but yet enjoyable. Everywhere you look, there's a variety and a intensity of all things mother nature everywhere you go so not just the weather it's not like it's just freezing white no no, no not at all we okay. went and as as we record this this is june but we went at the end of may and mm-hmm. spring is properly there in oh, the part of alaska okay. we went to we didn't go up into the northern parts of alaska we started out in anchorage and went down from there mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. the temperatures were really quite reasonable. Now I'm from Florida, so I was chilly, but hello, I'm from Florida. Uh, but the weather was really quite reasonable. And Good. this you'll love this. We went and visited a number of our listeners from Alaska who were very mm. welcoming and we got to go play with horses and things and it was fantastic. Good. There were folks in their backyards. It was 60 degrees barely. Uh-oh. In their bathing yeah. suits getting a tan. <laughs> Because they hadn't been able to for six months or something. There huh? you go. Yeah, so the p- folks up in Alaska are a little tougher than us wimps down here in Florida. Definitely, def- definitely tougher than me, man. I bow to you on that. Yeah, so um, I would recommend it. Anybody who, whether you are a city person, a country person, um, find something, some reason to go to Alaska, whether it's a road trip or a cruise or just fly in and enjoy Juno. Mm. Uh, go check out the Native American culture. The The Native American tribes there are really starting to open their arms to us tourists so we can learn about them. And they're starting to embrace their history more than they had in previous generations. And that was pretty cool. I got to learn a little bit about the languages and stuff. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. Did you learn any words? I, Do you know how to say horse? No. Mm. We, we, we learned how to say Hello and thank you, but of course it didn't stick because I yeah I'm lousy at that. But That's it was really okay. fun. We went to uh, Huna, 
uh, which is oh, a little yeah. village, and we learned a couple bits bits and pieces of the language and a little bit about their oral history and mm-hmm. the fact that the the peoples are now creating a lit- written language because historically it was a an oral culture. They didn't have a written language, and they're yeah. taking it and they're using the American alphabet to create a written language so that they can write down their tribe's history and yeah. the lure and the, and the stories that came with it. It was really cool. Before it's lost. Before really it's lost. cool. Isn't yeah. it amazing that this is all in the United States of America? I mean, you go to Hawaii and you get, maybe it's a little more touristy at this point, but you get that, that out of, you know, worldly yes. feeling of the, yes. even the smells and the intensity of all the, the sensory overload, I guess it is, you know, even in the water and everything. And they have this different language, this different culture. And you're like, am I still in the United States? Sounds like you got the same thing in Alaska. It's really, really cool. And everybody we came up with, all the Alaskans that we encountered were very welcoming, uh, enjoyed a lot, very open with their stories and chatting about where they came from. And yeah, it was really neat. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. Did, you, did you get to ride them we, there? We went driving. We drive. went up okay. and visited Good. with Lisa, and Glenn got to drive a Mini, which was so freaking adorable. She so got to ride cute. the Rocky, Rocky the Mini. And then the next day, we went with um, Emily, I think, Yeah. Um, and we got to go and drive a Percheron. Oh, Extremes. Okay. Yes, extremes. And <laughs> I got to go out in the carriage, and I went with Lisa, and she was driving one of her horses, who was awesome. So we got to do that, and then we had dinner with a couple of other listeners, and we had a lovely, enjoyable dinner out one night. Uh, before we headed back to the United States. So, yeah, a, a win, oh, win, win. Good. Yeah. Were you ready to go back to work? Yes, it took two weeks, but we were both ready to go back to work. <laughs> well, I'm ready to roll your sleeves up. Oh, um. <laughs> yay! Let's hear it. <laughs> no, it's, it's sorry. We missed you, but we we had some fun. I actually did one of these interviews solo without you, Jen. I don't know how I do it. Not as well. I, I promise you that. <laughs> you just, you had- do just fine. You just stress more. I probably do. do I worry about it more. Yeah, that's all right. It keeps me warm. That's all right. (laughs) But we do. We have some amazing, I mean, two families that they're from eventing world and polo world. So two different worlds, but they have achieved at such high level. They're just smart, off the charts, smart, both of these families and off the charts accomplished in both polo and eventing. And no, let's just throw in that one won the Mongol Derby as oh, well. the youngest and only woman, the first woman to win the Mongol Derby oh, and well. happens to be the youngest one to complete it. So <laughs> there's a lot of firsts going on in this episode. So cool that it's generational. You're seeing fewer of those generational equestrian families than you did probably 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much PC to be a professional equestrian anymore. And it's mm-hmm. really neat to hear the stories of these two families and how the generation coming up takes those traditions and pays them forward and does them better. It's not just do what yeah. my parents did. I'm going to do what they did and then I'm going to make it even better. So that's really Leapfrog. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Right up from the head. No, it's re- it's really cool. And it's cool for both generations to see that. I think they're both really proud of everything that's being accomplished. So as they should be without further ado, let's that's bring right. them on in. Let's hear a little bit from our title sponsor, Omega Fields the world's best omega-3 fatty acids for your horse. And then we're going to be chatting with the Ludwig family. Your horse is your partner in sport, in leisure, and just in life. To keep him at his peak performance and optimal health, a solid nutritional foundation is key. Ideally, horses are able to graze fresh growing grasses, which most closely mimic their natural diet. But that may not always be possible, 
and we may need to supply some of those missing ingredients in today's diets and provide more functional foods. One component of a horse's diet that is often underfed are omega-3 fatty acids. While more prevalent in fresh forages, harvested forages are lower in omega-3 fatty acids due to their more advanced maturity. Obviously, grasses and legumes have to grow to a sufficient height in order to be harvested, while foraging patterns of horses show great preference for shorter, less mature plants. That's why modern horsemen and horsewomen trust Omega Horse Shine to provide a powerful, bountiful source of omega-3 fatty acids for their equine partners. Look for Omega Horse Shine from Omega Fields at your local tack and feed supplier, or you can find them online at omegafields.com. Kirsten Ludwig is the daughter of the renowned polo coach Reggie Ludwig and has been playing since she was at the ripe old age of seven. She played varsity polo while at the University of Virginia and went pro after graduation. Kirsten is rated a number one goal or one goal in the arena and has played in Jamaica, Argentina, England, Ireland, Germany, France, Pakistan, Mexico, and Thailand. She's been training horses since she was 15, some of which currently play high goal polo in Florida, New York, England, Spain, and Thailand. She's also been training and teaching with her father for over 15 years now. And after graduating from UV with a PhD in molecular biology, she moved to Los Angeles where she does cancer research at UCLA and is also the head instructor at the California Polo Club. Don't you love it? The largest arena club in the nation, by the way. Kirsten's husband also plays and runs Polo West TV, which broadcasts tournament games played in California. Now, Reggie Ludwig is an icon. He started his polo career as a child and from early age felt a connection with his horses. At age of 15, Reggie started training polo ponies, but his polo career was interrupted in 1964 when Reggie enlisted in the Air Force and was sent to Vietnam. While training polo ponies in San Antonio, Texas, Reggie became friends with Memo and Carlos Grisita, good friends of our family, who were young players just starting out on their own career then. In 1983, the Polo Training Foundation asked Reggie to give a clinic at the University of Virginia, which launched his career as a world-renowned polo coach. Reggie ran the Virginia Polo Clinic in Charlottesville for the next 30 years. He's coached to the winner's circle of the U.S. Polo Championships and to the International Polo Worlds Championships. Reggie's an author also. He's a contributing editor to Polo Players Edition magazine, Germany's Polo Plus 10 magazine, and England's Polo Times and the USPA Blue Book video. He coaches annually in France, Germany, England, Switzerland, Belgium, Thailand, Canada, and Denmark. Of the Polo playing members of the United States, 35% have worked with Reggie on their polo game at one time or another. Reggie Ludwig is based out of the Thai Polo Club located in Bangkok, Thailand during the months of November through April. During the summer, he travels to Europe, Canada, and the United States to teach and coach polo. Well, welcome. I'm so honored to have Reggie Ludwig, his daughter Kirsten, and Monty on today to have a conversation about mostly about polo, but I think we're going to talk about horses a little bit too. And Reggie, I, I thought I'd just jump in here with you. You are truly a, a generational advocate for the game of polo and you go way back, as does Monty with horses. It's okay. Uh, was there ever a doubt that you chose the, the right career in polo? I didn't choose my career. My career chose me. That's a good answer. <laughs> in other words, I, I never had any thought this is what I should do or want to do. It just, just kind of happened to me. 
It just is a natural part of life. Well, it sounds like the same thing happened for you, Kristen. You grew up with it as well, was having a dad that's so ensconced in, in polo. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I did. And, and I was actually very lucky because my parents did give me a choice. They were very adamant that I have activities outside of polo, which is kind of rare for most polo families. Mm -hmm. Um, And they spent a lot of time taking me to Girl Scouts and soccer and all of those fun things. So, yeah, I was definitely given a choice. And I have found I've been able to strike a very nice balance between polo work and non-polo work. And I am very happy with where I am right now in my career. You do, you sound it too. Very healthy, happy, both of you in your careers. You, we've we've heard your bios now, and we know that you you do a lot in a lot of places, which is really interesting. And uh, I know Dad played a little polo. You played a little polo in your youth, is that right? Uh, badly, but I played <laughs> uh, as a teenager. But I I wasn't in the horse business until I was three. Yeah. So. <laughs> I had a little time, you know, <laughs> in the other world. And, yeah, I played for uh, 17-mile drive at Pebble Beach Club way back in, uh, in the, you know, in the days of yesteryear. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just so you know, Monty, if you're playing polo, you cannot do it badly. Oh. <laughs> polo, is, polo is to be enjoyed, not to be yeah. perfected. That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. I, well, I Reggie, I, I was going to ask you, what, what do you, I mean, you guys, I'm such a storied group here, both in the people world of coaching in polo and also tr- horse world and training of horses. For you, Reggie, what's the difference for you in training horses versus coaching players? Horses are a lot easier to get along with. <laughs> I, I thought you'd say <laughs> I knew it. It was perfect. Yeah. I, uh, I enjoy both sides, but I would ha- truly have to say the the thing that I have enjoyed the absolute most is my association with horses and just getting on a horse and working out how to feel who that horse is and how that horse wants me to respond to it and for it. And then it, it just brings me great pleasure to experience that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that is great. I, I know. And you, Monty and Reggie both knew the Grisita brothers well. No, Memo is is uh, still really competitive and active. Mm-hmm. Carlos, I know it's just, I mean, he had, what a career. But what do you two, what did, I'd love you to talk about them a little bit too. Um, what, did, what did you see, Reggie, early on when you met them in Texas that, that you thought these guys are going to go on or did you actually well i i met memo first and that's when he was three goals and probably about 19 or 18 19 or 20 somewhere around there and uh, he had been hired by steve ghost in san antonio at the rotomba polo club and it was just obvious to me that uh, only being 18 or 19 he was the first one in the barn in the morning usually about six and he'd be the first one on a horse, and he was on a horse all day. And when Carlos came in, he kind of followed the same way. So just sort of obvious that they had a work ethic that was conducive to them becoming who they are. Mm. 
And and that is a champion, isn't it? Kirsten, did you grow up with a good work work ethic in your family? I I I definitely did. Uh, it was, you know, both of my parents are are very accomplished in their field and they've both worked very very hard. So my brother and I, you know, from an early age, we would if we wanted to ride, we had to go get the horse and pack the horse up and take care of the horse. You know, we couldn't just show up to the barn and hop on any horse that we wanted. So I definitely grew up with a, a good work ethic and it's something that has helped me in you know, my career outside of polo. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, no kidding. What a career outside of polo, too. Not only are you amazing in polo, but you have a very academic brain, but a heart for the game of polo. So which which one are you most passionate about? Honestly, for me, I am most passionate about education mm-hmm. for anything, any form of education. Obviously, my field is science, but I see this a lot when I start to teach students is, is that they think that the game of polo is, is about them and they come and they don't ever want to learn to ride. So I'm, I'm really passionate about getting people to understand that they can be the greatest players in the world, but if they can't get to the ball, it doesn't, it doesn't do them any good. So I'm really passionate about getting people to, like I said, educate people on Courses and science and diseases and basic physiology and and that's that's where my passion lies. And that is a good reason why I have all three of you on this phone call too, because you all seem to have a passion for teaching and for generationally passing those concepts on. Am I right, Dad? I mean, that's I know that's some well, of your goal, I was, and I, I yeah, I was raised in a very difficult time and and under very difficult situations. And I became obsessed with getting a good education because I had a teacher in my grade school years, my primary school years, that convinced me that an education was the way out of this tunnel I was in. And uh, I'm obsessed with getting to know more about why we think the way we do and why we do the things that we do. I'm absolutely obsessed with that. And, uh, that takes me to horses because, as Reggie said, I mean, they're easier to work with than people, and they're easier to study uh, than yeah. people. Because, I, you know, in John Ford told me one time, I don't like working with horses. He said they're unpredictable. And I was about nine years old, eight years old when, when he did that. I was doing stunts for films at the time. And I remember looking at him and saying, so you like to work with actors? And he said, you've got a point there. <laughs> and uh, I, I've lived with that all my life. And, you know, horses are into pressure animals. Um, they will go into right. pressure. If they hit their hip on the door, they're going to hit it harder the next time. It, learning that they are into pressure is a whole big part of, of um, training horses and learning to live with horses. But a lot of professional trainers don't really know that horses are into pressure animals. <laughs> and un- until, they yeah. have a, until they have a game of polo where one side has to go on their feet and the other side on horses, I think we, we, we got to learn to ride if we want to win any game of polo. So the horse is yeah. more than 50% of the game. Well, and, and money in, in polo, it has been said since I was a kid that the horse is 80% of the game. Yeah. And, and I use that uh, statistic 
to let people know that, hey, look, you're only 20% of this operation. Yeah. If you really want to make yourself good, you better learn how to use the 80% That's to true. maximum effectiveness if you want to maximize your effectiveness. And I, and I think that's probably true in jumping and racing, anything else. You, know, you have to learn how to get along with the horse, how to help the that's horse do what you want it to do for you. It couldn't be said better. That's that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I give um, those um, Gracita brothers a lot of credit because they brought their breakers here and, and they brought uh, Adolfo Cambiasso here with his horses and he brought his breakers, and uh, they have really changed the way polo ponies are started or take their first saddle. Tremendously right. so. Tremendously yeah. and so. And, and it all started the... with Memo and Carlos. Yeah, well, they came here, and it, it really started with my, the seed I planted in their head when they, when they saw that they could take these thoroughbreds down there and cross them without killing every one of them that they put through the breaking yeah. process in the old way. Yeah. Then the, the game yeah. of polo changed for the better, don't you think? Oh, tremendously. I was doing some work in uh, France one time, and after the end of the day, we watched the 2007 Argentine Open on TV. Uh-huh. And then we watched the two and then we watched the 2017 Open on TV. Uh-huh. And the difference in the horses and the way the riders rode them unbelievable. And all yeah. that started yeah. all that started about 25 30 years ago, which yeah. would have been the Gracita era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when they came here, it was about 10 years ago and uh you know, they'd already started to climb the hill and, and they had some thoroughbred stallions they took down there. The problem was that the breakers, when they weren't there, when, when other people weren't around, they just went back to their old ways and they yeah. killed, they killed more than half of the babies they started yeah. 52% the stats show. So they, and they were killing the more sensitive ones yeah. clearly, you know, yeah. and those, those were your champions and uh, now they yeah. can get through there with the straight thoroughbreds if they want to. Yeah, so no, I'm, no, no, I'm really sure. proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really proud I, of it. Uh, and, you know, you know it, 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 I just have to say that of all the things that I've done in my life, the most gratifying thing and the most, the uptake that's been the greatest is polo. Not show jumping, not dressage, yeah. not Western, but polo yeah. has taken it up more dramatically than any other discipline. Did you ever know Monty Foreman? Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. He played polo for a while, and he yeah, and he yeah. claims in his book um, the Foreman um, training yeah. method that uh, polo is by far the most demanding yeah. of all the horse sports. Yeah. And it's the one that produces the, the greatest effect on the horse. And I just could couldn't have agreed with more because the reality is. Polo uses every other discipline, equestrian discipline there is. And if polo players really want to know how to ride better, then they ought to have some experience at racing and dressage and jumping and barrel racing and reining. They should have experience in all those in order to use a polo pony most effectively. That's so true. Did you know Billy Linfoot? Yes, sir, I did, huh? Uh, he was our vet when I was, 
I think he came to us as, as our vet when I was about six years old. And, uh, yeah. I, I, he took me to play at Pebble beach, uh, as a teenager. And, uh, yeah. that's how I got involved. But you know, Billy, Billy went tough like those South American guys. And, uh, he, yeah, he stayed did. tough. He stayed tough till the day he died, you know? Yes. Yeah. And I, he never yeah. would, uh, come around and, and think about meeting <laughs> the horse's needs. No, he, you know, he, he wanted to make the horse to do what he wanted it to do. You know, you were, you were mentioning why earlier in your training and all that. That's a huge, huge part of my teaching method is not to tell people this is how you do it, but yeah. this is why you should do it that way. Yeah. I and it was interesting for me to watch Kirsten teach polo at the California Polo Club because she does the same thing, but she does it just a little differently to me. She's created her own style, if you will. And I look back at that and I'm thinking, well, that, that's what more polo instructors need to do. They need to be able to explain <laughs> to their students why you need to do it this way. Yeah. And I was just uh, super thrilled when I was studying her teaching. Good for well, you, Kirsten. You can take a big congratulations for that. You know, I decided that my theme for 2018 was a good trainer can make a horse do almost anything he wants him to, but the great trainer yep. can cause yep. the horse to want to do it. And yep. I think Polo is yeah. the perfect example of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what you have to do in Polo. Yeah, Kirsten, listen uh, to there's, that. There's you, no doubt about it. You, you got some... Uh, You've got some explaining to do, Kristen. So tell us a little bit about your style differences. <laughs> I'd love to hear about I mean, you, first of all, you um, were in college polo. College polo is a little different than the pros. Tell us a little bit about the difference there and then tell yes, us about your style. Uh, well, so collegiate polo is, it's um, the best way that I can describe collegiate polo is it's the closest thing to roller derby that you will ever <laughs> see. It's because it's arena uh, there's a lot more physical contact, the bumps and the ride-offs. It's, you ask a lot more of the horse and you ask a lot more of the player, not necessarily in terms of speed, but in terms of sharp, quick moves. And it, it's very, very different than what is kind of thought of the traditional form of polo. Um, it's, it's great polo, but it, I, I, I'm, I'm glad I did it and I got out and I can't do it anymore. My body won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still um, young. Oh my goodness. And, and so the problem yeah, is, yeah, is more yeah. your, your classic, uh, acres of lawn and, uh, speed and turns, yeah. definite turns. And, 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 uh, and I'm wondering about your horses, Kirsten, what, what do you, what do you grab for? Are you getting your best ponies from the U S or Argentina or where do you go? Um, honestly, so I'm, I'm kind of a little spoiled. I have my father as a personal trainer for most of my horses. So I, I get to be a little spoiled when it comes to that. I actually find that for the life, you know, for the, what I do right now, I actually get primarily horses that have training in polo, but have probably, they've been pushed harder than they should have, or they've been asked to do things without the support that they need. So both my father and I actually really like taking horses that know the game, but just need to be retuned a little and kind of let them know that they can play this sport and they're not going to get hurt. And that's actually most of my string right now is what I would consider to be primarily rehabilitated horses. 
and they're amazing yeah. for me. I love them. That's so um, that's that's primarily what we go for. for. Good for you. I, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, there's so many horses out there when you open up that avenue, aren't there? That can, if, if they're yeah. being treated it's fairly, they can respond. Wonderful. Yeah. And I've got, like I said, I've got actually right now my best horse, which she went through several different people who couldn't handle her and who couldn't handle her. And she's still very tough. But when I get on her, uh, I understand her crazy because I have a little bit of crazy in me as well. <laughs> so it works. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, one thing, great. one thing I wanted to ask you all three really about is, I read where Reggie, you were in the Vietnam War, and that you were called up and you served our country, and I thank you for that. What there's a perspective there uh, when somebody has seen a little bit of the world at a young age and a tough part of it, um, a tough aspect of humanity. Do you believe that there are aspects of horses that can help veterans with? with some of the post-traumatic stress that come out? I think there are aspects of horses, the right horses with the right person, that horses are a good therapy for anybody who is, has an open mind to accepting what the horse is and is willing to work at developing a relationship between themselves and the horses to where the horse and the person gets benefit out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so great. You know that I'm working with uh, post-traumatic stress and horses uh, in four different countries at the moment, uh-huh. and um, uh, it's just amazing. I, I step back, and my eyes come open, and I say, my God, I didn't realize it was this good. And uh, when, yeah. a horse trust, when a horse trusts you and openly shows it, then you realize yeah. you can get trust again. And these guys yeah. coming back from war, they have a hard time trusting wives and children and bosses and all sorts yeah. of people. And yeah. uh, I'm I'm having results, Reggie, that are just over the moon. We we had one recently in England, down in Plymouth, a uh, place called Bovington, mm-hmm. and I had eight people fill out the form at the end and and sign it. These uh, the government hands out these forms. And those guys in three days listed a 169% improvement in their way they felt about themselves. And I just oh, couldn't fantastic. believe it. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's over yeah. the moon. And I'm, I'm working with uh, Joel Baker here to try to get the U.S. National Polo Association to join in with me and make venues all over the United States where we can go and and I can select some polo ponies and do these clinics, and I don't yeah. charge anything for them, and it's a full-on 501c3 nonprofit thing. But anyway, right. we could make a huge difference in thousands of people if we went countrywide with it. Mm-hmm. Then you are, you're in the process of realizing you have a responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That is right. That's right. And, and you both... You. We do, we do. And you both are in the Indio area. Am I right, Kristen and Reggie? Uh, no, uh, I'm she's in Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. Oh, you're up in Los Angeles. Okay, so Southern California area anyway. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. we, we should talk about that. Um, there's some, some Santa Barbara polo players actually, that, yeah? Ahead, well, no, I, I have a friend right now who just started working with uh, PTSD vets down in Orange County. And... Um, 
what I, he's had amazing results with his clients and his patients, but he himself has actually said that he benefited from oh, it yeah. um, because he does, you know, because we work with horses on a daily basis. And so we take what they give us for granted. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, and what he's saying is, is once he sees, you know, how other people view what horses give us, it's just given him a greater appreciation for the animals. So it's, it's a, it's a two way street. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a wonderful statement. That is a wonderful statement. And I, and I agree. It's our happy horse place. Right. And, and I think no matter what your discipline <laughs> yeah. or what your, what your uh, interest is in horses, it's all good. And we just advocate for keeping horses in people's lives here. So you whatever can. it yeah, takes. Yeah. You know, Kirsten, yeah, you I, I, uh, you could tell your friend that, um, as I got out of university, as the, the non heroes were coming back, uh, they named this thing post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder, PTSD. And you mentioned yeah. those letters. There's no D mm-hmm. it is not a disorder. Our, our vocabulary will tell you that a disorder tends not to heal. It's an injury. Yeah. Injuries heal and disorders don't. And we can heal yeah. these injuries, but it's PTSI. And, and I hear some people now on television referring to it as PTSI because of the people coming through my clinics. And the veteran feels so much better as soon as he hears this injury thing. They, they don't want a disorder. Mm-hmm. A disorder is uh, maybe you're born without legs or arms or something. But um, an injury can heal. And horses can heal your injury. The world leaders could learn a lot from horses if they'd listen. Voila. You bet. (laughs) You said a mouthful when you said the world leaders could learn a lot from horses. I would love to give them clinics. I'd love to take you along (laughs) with me to give them clinics. You know, and what I tell people in polo, horses are people in a different uniform. Yeah. Mm, Very nice. So true. Very nice. That's so well, true. Yeah, and we know, never just... gave them near enough credit for their intelligence. When I was growing up, World Book had them on the yeah. bottom of the list below a chicken. <laughs> I don't go for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. They're brilliant well, in a certain category. It's very narrow. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Well, gosh, it was wonderful to get you all together in one spot. And I hope this just sparks the conversation to get together physically so that you all meet and Maybe it's down south or maybe it's in central California where we are near Solvang at Flag is Up. But in, it'll be my goal to get you all introduced and, and talking <laughs> some more, not just uh, with with some time restraints. So You um, get along I, with Tom Barrick? I know Tom quite well, and I think he's a really, really nice guy. Yeah. He, and, he, you know, he has his fields right here near us. and lovely. Yeah, right. And that's where Memo is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're actually supposed to be going up there. The California Polo Club is supposed to be going up there in the next couple of weeks to play. There we go. Oh, okay. okay. Together. I'd yeah. love to meet you and, 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 uh, like and visit with you. Shoot, shoot okay. me an email. And Kirsten, what's the, the website for the California Polo Club? Hmm? The website for the California oh, California Polo Club. Dot com. Dot com. Okay. And red, 
All right. All right. Good. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we um, communicate with that too. And Reggie, I thank you. Is there something you want people to contact you about, Reggie? Do you have any clinics coming up or some training that we can share? Well, I'm going to England in June, France in July, and then Argentina in November. Oh my gosh. I want to be a Reggie follower. That sounds really fun. (laughs) Follow you around. I want to come to Argentina and I want yeah, to come to Argentina and do a clinic down there. Yeah, we'll finish up in Argentina and I'll meet I mean, there. They, uh, they, they could really, really use your help. But to be honest with you, about 20 years ago, I was convinced that the Argentines went through far too many horses to produce the few that they do. But yeah. they've changed their training techniques and are now producing better horses and more of them. Yeah. And uh, they could really use your understanding of horse psychology and horse and how to relate to a horse. So well, I, I need would somebody encourage to put, you to... I, I need somebody to put it together and, and, and get me down there. I would love to do it. I've been to Argentina will, many times will, for the racing industry. I will, start, I, I will start mentioning your name. Okay. Thank you. Super. Thank you, okay. All right. Well, it's I've been kept great you to long be on enough. You. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you. Thank you, folks. Appreciate and thank it. Thank you so much for having us and inviting us. It's an honor and a well. privilege. Hi, Carol Herder here, president of Cavallo, home of the world's most trusted and popular hoof boots. You know, one of the most interesting parts of what I do is the many horsey stories I get to hear. Most of them are really uplifting. Some are stories of challenges and a few are downright sad. Recently, a wonderful woman took the time to approach us at a show to share a story about her horse who went down in quicksand. It started out as a really scary story. We were holding our breaths, waiting for the outcome, and it turned out wonderful. They winched the horse out relatively unscathed, albeit, you know, a little traumatized, and everyone standing around were super amazed that he still had his cavallo hoof boots on. Scary story with a good ending. Another testament to Cavallo. If you don't have a pair for your horse, it's time. Cavallos are easy to put on, easy to take off when you want to take them off, and they stay on. They stay on in all terrain. Cavallo, the world's most trusted hoof boots. British athlete Lara Pryor Palmer is the first woman to win the Mongol Derby, the world's longest horse race at a 1,000 kilometers across Mongolia. She is, as well, the youngest person ever to complete it. It's amazing. Laura described the race as, get this, like the Tour de France crossed with snakes and ladders. Hilarious. She just happens to be the niece of British equestrian legend Lucinda Green. And Laura called us from Stanford University, and I think you'll find that she's very much finding her own way in this equestrian world. Well, welcome, You're the next generation. You're our hope for the future. Did you know that, Laura? (laughs) (laughs) You've done so much in your short life. I mean, you're going to Stanford right now, Stanford University, and we can tell by your accent that you're not indigenous to that area of the world, right? I don't think many people around here are indigenous, but yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Where are you from? I'm, um, I'm, God, lately I've been really annoying people by answering that question vaguely and saying I'm from the ocean or the sky <laughs> or from the earth or my mother. But yeah. I, I suppose in geographical terms, I grew up 
partly in London and partly in, in Hampshire, about an hour and a half west. Yeah, good. Well, people from our side of the ocean will say close enough. Yeah, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be the right accent that they would be pairing you with. But one thing interesting about you is that you don't just speak English, whether it be United States English or England English. You also speak some other languages. What are those? Yeah, that's been um, that's been a bit of a can of worms. I started learning one and then I just kept taking up new ones. It just really frees my mind, uh, for starters. I, I actually started learning Arabic by accident because I got to a meeting with a person who wanted to know what my extra course was. And I said, I didn't know we got to do an extra course. He's like, yes, you meant to be thinking about this all summer. And you, I need to put it in the system now. And I was like, oh, gosh, um, I don't know. And he gave me this alphabetical list. And so <laughs> the first thing I saw was Arabic. And I was like, oh, I'll do Arabic, you know. And I, I'd obviously heard that it was um, difficult for an English speaker to learn Arabic. So I was excited. And then I promptly failed the first term. Did you? <laughs> At that point, I was hooked. So I sweet-talked my way back onto the course. Uh, and this and, had nothing to do with Arabian horses or anything. It was just literally the alphabet, huh? No. Yeah, it was all very thoughtless. A lot of <laughs> I do are, I'm afraid. But And then I, um, I took up Persian, Farsi, which I'm actually, I can speak much better. I can barely speak any Arabic anymore. And then I, I'd already, I'd already done a bit of German all the way through school and I speak a bit of Spanish. Um, and then I think my favorite language was the term I did of Pashto, which is spoken in mm. Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's just, it's a really strong sounding language. I really like speaking it, but I'm basically monosyllabic in it. <laughs> Well, that sounds like you can get into a bar in almost any continent on earth and do fine. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you just to touch on just a, another little feather in your cap. You happen to be the winner of the 2013 Mongol Derby, the world's longest and toughest horse race. And, uh, is that where you picked up a few of those accents? Accents. <laughs> um. Yeah, the race was very international. Um, I actually don't speak any Mongolian, so I remember riding across the steppe feeling like a complete idiot, not being able to communicate myself. I had about three words, like, down for a fast horse, something like, I, I knew the word for water, and I knew the word for tired. That was it. That's it? And you won the whole thing. You did all right. I don't think you need any more words. <laughs> that's true you can do a lot through gesturing so tell me give us a thumbnail on that one why did you get into the mongol derby and how did you win it <laughs> well um i had the, the self and sense of self-importance i suppose again write a whole book about that so yeah, i suppose i've got to answer in two two sentences but i'll try why did i do it i had come i was approaching the start of university and i felt as though my friends were, we were all working jobs or traveling to, uh, known death, like, not, not known, sorry. Uh, we were traveling to similar places and not really knowing what to do when we got there. So when I found out about the Mongol Derby, I was like, ah, oh, this is a structured thing. I get to raise money for charities, do it. It's a, it's a horse race. It's not just a sort of aimless ride. So I, you know, like, cause I, I work well within structure. I let them like to break the rules, you know, yeah. where, where, <laughs> let myself completely free. I go a bit sort of mad. So, so that sounded great. And then, you know, I was 
six weeks before the race so I was very late to sign on and they gave me a place I only found out about it last minute I said oh I can't really afford this <laughs> actually we shouldn't that's right me. there is a bit of a, a, a penalty to signing up isn't there it's, yes, it has it's to an investment means that people spend about a year in advance securing sponsorship trying to raise funds for it and oh obviously didn't have time for that so I managed this it shouldn't be publicized <laughs> I should get a discount um so then yeah and then I was sort of tied into it not knowing how dangerous or yeah. it could be and I then spoke to a past competitor you know after I'd written all my charity letters and she scared me so much I wanted to pull out mm. I don't know how I won it I mean I, I mean it, oh I'd love or so become a, a commentator oh well Laura just did this and that I, I'm not sure <laughs> I wish I could analyze it in that way that sports commentators do yeah really I I was just really in a lot of pain. I really wanted to get to the end. I'm mm. um, competitive and I really wanted to beat the girl who was in the lead because she told everyone she was going to win. <laughs> <laughs> she was then in the lead. Um, yeah, and it's just a, it was a careful, you know, you have to look after your horses, but you also have to navigate. And I get, uh, early in the race, I kept getting lost. Oh. So you have to learn the land and, get your psyche into it so you could sort of navigate without crossing bogs and mountains. Oh, gosh, right. I mean, I've heard, we've all heard things about the Mongol Derby, but you should write a book. I, I really do, because if I put all the things together that I've heard about the Mongol Derby, uh, it takes a very special person to not only sign up, but maybe you were you were backed into it quickly, but... To finish is an incredible, life-changing is what I, I've heard, um, event, experience. But to actually win it is probably a once in a lifetime. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll be going back. <laughs> I bet. I, I would love to do, I'd love to go riding just in some parts of those worlds. So I think a lot of us, Gals who just love to get outside on a horse, dream of Turkmenistan and, you know, Kazakhstan, some of those just beautiful steppe areas where horses are uh, meant to be, really, origins of many horses there. So, Mm. so, Is there no space equivalent to that in the U.S.? I imagine Wyoming as having very Mm. Mm steppe-like land. Is that wrong? There are areas for sure like that, but I I don't know that everybody would agree that it is like Mongolia because there's just that element of the people and the culture that you're not going to find anywhere near here. Um, you know, and that's the edgy part of competing in anything like that where you're, you're really out of your element completely. Uh, and the horses too, you know, I mean, I guess the equivalent might be something like, um, what I saw in a movie unbranded, you know, where they grab some Mustangs and they literally start them and then go across country. But uh, the beauty of those, I've seen movies uh, done emotionally about Mongolia and those areas and riding horseback and, and probably is, that's the best way to do it, actually. Um, I think we all have a romantic idea about that. But the reality would be in your book, right? <laughs> it's going to be the book you write. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. you have written a book, and I would love to talk about this again in your young life. You've written a book um, about that that ex- about the experience, and, and you're editing it. It's called Rough Magic, according to my notes. Tell us a little bit. It's not out yet, but tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, the book just profits on what is quite a, um, I suppose if I distance myself, it's quite an intriguing story. It's basically this slapdash, you know, thoughtless 19-year-old girl who goes out really last minute to do this really long horse race. She has no idea what she's getting herself in for. And she just really wants to finish this race because she'll become the youngest person ever to have finished it. And um, sort of manages against you know, any expectation, especially amongst the people who know her best, who know how um, or view her as very untogether, um, mm. manages to, um, doesn't cross the finish line first, but ends up being found the victor. And so that's, that's the sort of structure of it. Um, but then obviously as the years have passed winning, well, at the time meant something to me, but not an enormous amount. And since then it's meant less and less. And I've become more and more interested in how that, I mean, I think the reason I wrote it down in the first place was I was so shocked by how much I loved that extreme fatigue, the extreme physical challenge every day getting up and riding for 14 hours on four different galloping horses mm. feeling like I can't believe I haven't been doing this since I was born like this is what my body came to earth to do like I don't know why I sat at so many school desks and didn't run away mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's also an inquiry into movement and settlement mm. and yeah the various and and also uh, a sort of uh, questioning my Britishness kind of thing. Ah. Every Brit I think I've ever met has wanderlust to travel the world and do whatever that they love to do. Yeah, but the colonial bargains are embarrassing. Don't you think? I, I, I know. I think. I think it's intriguing because many of us are not brave enough to do that. Um, I happen to like to travel, but in my family, I'm probably more stay at home than most because you know, Dad is on the road. So much. And, yeah. yeah. And they have, they've spent their life traveling, but, um, it really, maybe it's his Welsh, uh, roots or something. <laughs> there seems to be from that part of the world. Uh, but in your short life, you've, you've been around, you've, you're been a venter. Tell us a little bit about your eventing background to one star, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, all very, um, low key. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do any of it if my aunt didn't live over the road, Lucinda. Um, Lucinda Green. Yeah, that's that's quite an aunt that you have to give lessons, uh, take <laughs> yeah. lessons from. Yeah. Your father, Monty, because she travels literally nonstop. I used to get one lesson from her every year. I mean, they, were, they were so good that they would last me, you know, and but all the coming months. She's, wow. she's really got away with words and metaphors and getting ideas across into your body straight, you know. To, which um, So I feel... Really, yeah, I mean, I, despite all the education I've been privileged enough to have, I'd, I'd credit horses with any kind of, you know, sanity or worth in, you know, my life. So, and that's thanks to her, um, uh, existing and also my mother for supporting it. Um, but I just did a, you know, a little bit. I, most of my ponies, I had two horses that wouldn't go near a cross country horse course. Um, <laughs> And until I had one Alfie who was a hero and did go one star, but I can't ride dressage, so that never went. What is yeah in eventing? I think that's what I hear most from from a 
an adventuresome rider is like, yeah, I'm pretty good until you get to the dressage. <laughs> it seems yeah. to be the part that you least enjoy, but that's okay. No, I, do you know, I absolutely love dressage. Oh, I good. haven't put, I haven't had enough lessons or put enough time into it. It's yeah. such an art. Um, it's a real listening as well. You've got to have so much feel. And I really, I'm, I'm longing to try and get, get into it a bit more. But. You probably will then if, if that's some, you know, there's, there's an evolution in, in horse, horses with people. Don't you think that, uh, it, when you live long enough, I don't want to sound old here, but when you live long enough, I, I think there is an arc that you do. A lot of it, you get back to your roots or, the other option is just getting to those things that you've always really wanted to do. And for some reason just didn't get there with horses, but, uh, but it it rarely is the person I talk to these days that has been along the same discipline, you know, three horses later, it's, it's often um, getting to things. Maybe it becomes their children when they finally have children. And then that those create new adventures and, and, uh, Hmm. It's it's a fun arc anyway, and us horse people kind of have an inside track to why that is so cool. What what is it about the concepts you sought out, Monty, uh, Monty Roberts' dad, a little bit on wanting to know more about his concepts? What what appealed first? What appeals? Well, I'd read his book, um, his first book, so I know his sort of life story. What is his first book, The Man Who Listens to Horses? I don't know. That's right. Yeah, no, he was, he he would say he was forced into that. (laughs) That is his his first autobiography. It's wonderful. Um, I think I've grown up around, because I understand that Monty's context with his father was, you know, in a situation of like a lot of violence against Mm -hmm. horses and, or just a, a, a failure to really try to listen and understand them. But, I actually think that still today, growing up all around England, I saw people, you know, just whipping and, you know, trying to use a stick sometimes, but just doing doing things to horses without being on their side, um, being against them in a way, in trying to get them to do something for you. And it always seemed a bit illogical. And so then to – my aunt actually took me – to see Monty when I was younger. I don't think I've mentioned that to you. No. Um, and, and so I, that was the reason I went and read his book recently. Uh, and I've always been intrigued, but had been locked into the school structure and not had mm-hmm. time to really get into it. So I'm, I'm a beginner. I want to learn. I think. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's fun. I, I love a fresh, you don't have the muscle memory of, you know, decades of doing things traditionally and you have the empathy. I can hear it and the compassion for horses to, to question that muscle memory. So it's really good. It's hard for people in there. I think they're very brave when they're in their fifties and sixties to say, wow, I've seen a different way. I've seen a better way. And to change that, that, um, what my grandfather had as a, us versus them kind of attitude and uh, which he died with, by the way, he thought dad was always going to be run over by the horses, um, not only physically, but also mentally, like the horses were taking advantage of him. You know what I mean? Um, by that softness, it was a weakness and, uh, turns out it's just the opposite, frankly. But, um, so I'm glad, I'm so glad that it, 
I think as we speak, you're 22, 23? 23, yeah. Yeah, 23 years old. To have that much depth in your experience base, but just being a, a beginner at this, I'm excited to watch how you take up these concepts and, 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 uh, bless your heart and for coming to see his, his events and your auntie for taking you. I think that's wonderful. What a, what a great endorsement too. Now I shouldn't ask a woman's age, but what decade is your aunt in now? I might have to Google her. To <laughs> and that, that's a family, right? It's definitely about 63. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty close. Okay. So, um, yeah. So for her to accept those things, that is a great trainer to me. I think the trainer that recognizes that being fair to the horse and to um, understand that there is a better way than, than being argumentative with the horse, then um, I, I respect her even more than I already do. So that's great. And what are your, what are your plans long-term for horses? Are you going to be a writer or a writer? <laughs> um, yeah, I um, I don't think I'll ever be anything. I think it's just a matter of what, like, what am I doing today? I've been writing all day. I'm writing verb with an ing on the end. Right. <laughs> I don't ever decree myself a writer or a rider. But my uh, 100% my existence on earth lies with being up and in my body and with horses, not in front of a laptop screen. Although, you know, writing is also a physical art and that these works just shift out of your arm if you've got a pen in your hand onto the page. And it, it can be a very uh, complete experience. But the rest that comes after all the editing and stuff is, mm. is, not, is not fun work. So <laughs> obviously with horses, there's, there's less fun work too, but it's, it, I don't mind manual labor at all. Um, but the future is is difficult to foresee, um, uh, and I, I do think you have to do things purely and wholly. And I've had a very all over the place life, so it'd be nice just to pick one thing and go with it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a fortune teller, so I can't tell you. Okay, I like that. Keep your options open. I could see you being a great spokesperson for horses in the Middle Eastern countries given your talents and abilities of communication there. I think that there could be more fairness with the way horses are treated in certain areas. And since you are um, accessible that way, you've been brave enough to go off and win the Mongol Derby, and you certainly can speak languages in foreign countries that I couldn't. And it would be wonderful to see as part of your life being very influential in that. And if there's anything that we can do to encourage you, to be an advocate for horses in that way, I think it'd be wonderful. I think you would enjoy it too, but I, hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I hope we get to see you at Flag. Flag is at Farms in, in Solving and uh, just get you in the round pen, get a little experience. We have a gentling pen where we, the purest language on earth in Equus, I think, is with the Mustangs that we we take out of those holding pens and get through the gentling pens. And I would love for you to see that and experience that and feel it in your fingers too about that pure language it's it's unusual in europe to get a purely wild horse one that's been in the survival mode not just you know in a pen um domesticated and and brought up in a kind of a clean environment but one that's actually had to 
build its confidence by surviving out there. That is the coolest. When those accept a human, it's the coolest experience. I'd love to have that for you. Wow. That sounds amazing. Let's do it. Let's do it. We got to get you up there when you uh, have some downtime for school. And I know that's probably hard to do, but that's my promise to you. If you will carve out the time, we'd love to have you up there. I can't wait. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you for joining us today on Horsemanship Radio. I can't wait to share you with our listeners and I hope they enjoyed this and we can have you back. Thank you so much for having me. I loved your questions. Thank you, Laura. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place in the The magic in the language of the herd. Dear Monty, We're starting a two-year-old filly, and putting a bridle on her and taking it off is virtually impossible. Can you tell us how we can overcome her dislike of the bridle going over her ears? Monty's answer. I would estimate that 90% of headshot horses are man-made as a result of people striking the horse's head with ropes or wits or twitching an ear, a procedure whereby a rope is twisted around the ear to produce pain, forcing the horse to comply with a person's demand. The memory of this can easily cause a horse to be reticent about allowing touch in that area. It is also important, however, to acknowledge those 10% horses that are head shy without the intervention of a human. In these cases, physical discomfort of some type is the cause, and it's imperative to have your horse checked for lice, ticks, or other parasites, as well as dental problems, before you start to retrain the behavior. Trust is the key to enabling your filly to relax while you handle her ears. Trust is the key to everything I do around horses. The first step is always using join-up to build and repair trust using the horse's language, equus. Then you should start handling her head using advance and retreat. If at all possible, use the dually training halter so you can train your filly to yield to pressure on her head instead of her flinging her head up to the pressure. It is important that when the filly momentarily accepts the feeling of your hands around sensitive areas on her head, you walk away instantly, thus releasing the pressure on her. Once you and your filly are comfortable and relaxed with this process, you can move into introducing a hair dryer to her. Spray her with water so she's wet over her head and neck and have a handler holder so you can operate the dryer. If cords and power are not available, you could use a battery powered toothbrush. Holding the hairdryer away from your filly, gradually move the flow of air over her hindquarters and up to the shoulder, beginning to condition her to the flow of air in the sound of the motor. Start to move the flow of air over her head and ears using advance and retreat methods until she begins to accept the stimulus. Once she is comfortable with the air blowing directly on her ears, you can start to use your hand on and around her ears and introduce a brush, clippers, etc. Please find and read a copy of my textbook if possible, as this book outlines the process in far greater detail with diagrams and photos to assist your learning. You can also attend training programs to help your filly relearn the appropriate behavior. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts. And I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. Western, English, 
the beginner or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online too, on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. July 9 through 10, we've just added motivational interviewing with horses by Chris Robbins at Flag is Up Farms. It's really fun. July 23 through the 3rd of August, 2018, we have a Gentling Wild Horses course coming up at the farm as well. And then August 6 through 10, 2018, we have Monty's special training at Flag is Up Farms. And then shortly after that, for those who speak Portuguese, we have another Monty special training. And Monty will speak English, and there will be Portuguese translation. And if you didn't commit all of that to memory, that's a lot, you can find all of that and much, much more at MontyRoberts.com. Or you can call Flag is Up Farms. That's right. They have a phone number, and they have a landline. Woohoo! 805-688-6288 is how you'll find them. And for details about today's show, episode 115, go to horsemanshipradio.com and you'll find links and photos and more information about today's guests and topics. And we love your feedback. That's right. Your feedback helps us make these shows better and it makes us feel good or not so good, depending on what you have to say. (laughs) You can follow Monty Roberts on Facebook. Just type in Monty Roberts. Look for the one that says Monty Roberts with a little blue check mark. That's the official page. And Monty is also on Twitter. His handle is Monty underscore Roberts. And get the app. You'll never miss any shows. You can set up the Horse Radio Network app, which is free, to either download just certain shows or you can hit the master feed and get them all. If you're a really diehard listener and want to listen to all 15 shows every week, go to your app store for your Android or your iPhone and look for Horse Radio Network. It's free to download and easy to use. Yeah, I'm so glad you guys built that app. It is just the easiest smartest way to thing we ever did. access. Smartest thing you ever did. And did you do it? No, you had somebody do it, but that was we smart. We had a developer really. make that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You guys are pretty pretty good at this stuff. So many thanks to our sponsors, too. That's Omega Fields. That's Cavallo Horse and Rider and Monty Roberts University. Be sure to visit all those other great shows, those 15 shows on the Horse Radio Network, too, at www.horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours.